Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for January 2013. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen JJ Abrams directed reboot of Capricorn 1, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is. Oh god, that's way too good and made me forget everything. Hi, I am writer, hyphen director, hyphen ethically murky Academy Award nominee Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us this month is our very special guest. Ah, George hyphenated viscous. <laughs> Who, um, uh, yeah, I'll, I haven't done quite as much as that. But anyway, I've, apparently I've got a whole bunch of hyphens, so let's move on. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, George. Uh, now, there are way, way too many films released this month. So let's kick off with You Will Meet Us, Tall Dark Stranger, the Woody Allen film that he made before Midnight in Paris that was delayed release because no one wanted to release it and even though I'm a big Woody Allen fan and love everything he does I can kind of see why it's okay it's not his best work I agree I, I, I'm surprised they're releasing it now and uh, what worries me is that you've got a, a rather weak film and people think that this is his latest mm. and it comes after Paris and it comes after Rome people haven't thought that Rome was as good as Paris now they're looking at this one it's not as good as Rome mm. so when he gets his new one out Mm, yeah, they they perceive a decline, I guess. Um, mm. All right, Gangster Squad. Plastic. Loved it. <laughs> I'm in the middle. I'm like, if you don't have time to watch every other gangster film ever made, this yeah. one will probably do. It reminded me of Dick Tracy, so I just took it as being just a comic book uh, rendition of The Untouchables. Yeah, see, I, I, I just sort of felt, uh, ladies and gents, go and rent The Untouchables or Dick Tracy. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just oh, look, the actors are good. It's never boring. It's just plastic. All right, Jack Reacher. Like, I feel like this is this feels like a seventies McQueen flick. I loved Jack Reacher. I think it's really it's really old fashioned and stripped back, and there's no CGI. And Cruz is playing a much more restrained version of that sort of, of persona and very McQueen esque to the point where I started substituting seventies actors in the supporting roles. Um, yeah, and, and everybody's really great, and it's twisty, and it's not afraid to be silly. Really dug it. Thoroughly agree. I loved it. I had a ball. I didn't expect to, but, um, my God, I was sitting there just going, I'm really enjoying this a heck of a lot more than I ever thought. So <laughs> yeah. I think I, I liked it a lot, not quite as much as you guys. I felt it, it could have pushed the noir aspects a little further. Uh, it, I felt it sort of skirted on them, but um, but I did like it a lot, and I love Chris, Chris McQuarrie. Yeah, mm. uh, Hitchcock, uh, Hallmark TV movie. That's what it feels like to me. Mm. It's just, I, it's just, I mean, despite the big cast and look, I, I'm gonna say I wasn't bored by it, but it was just so soft on everything, and it just felt like a Hallmark Lifetime movie of the week. There's nothing particularly daring or punchy about it. It papers over a lot of the darker corners of Hitchcock's life. And the fact that the Helen Mirren character is kind of public, uh, punished for wanting to collaborate on a project with someone else other than Hitch is kind of a bit ordinary too. And, yeah, just found it really average. And Hitch, and I'm sorry, but Hopkins contorts his face way too much in this part. It's like it, it, the whole thing about Hitchcock is so laconic and, and Hopkins is anything but in mm. this. I didn't understand why he was still wearing the skin mask from Silence of the Lambs <laughs> that he had on his face. That was that was never covered. I uh, I thought it was a dangerous film because I thought that um, people coming away from that would actually buy it as being factual. And so the next time they'd see Psycho, they'd be adding up, well, this is the point where Alma Revel was going to have an affair with this guy type of deal and it failed. And, and you go, the last thing, whenever you read anything on Hitchcock, Alma Revel 
having an affair with anybody mm. outside Hitch is impossible. Yeah. Mm. Um, the, the film is so inaccurate mm. that when it actually depicts things I know happened, I no longer believe them because it was in this film. <laughs> yeah, you're the second one who's said exactly the same. Really? Thing. Yes. <laughs> and uh, after watching it, I thoroughly agree. Mm. Uh, but having said that, I, I had to put it that night mm. after I was seeing Hitch, I, I went home and I put on The Girl, which deals with his uh, Toby Jones playing Hitchcock and um, Sienna Miller playing Tippi Hedren. Mm. And that is what I felt Hitch should have been. I agree. And, and and I've got to say, it made me feel very ill watching this film. Mm. Very ill indeed. Yeah, The Girl is a much better film. Although, I've got to say, I did part of me enjoyed Hitchcock, and I've never enjoyed a film that I've actively hated, like, simultaneously. <laughs> like, it made me so angry, and yet I was going, this is entertaining, even That's though it's reprehensible. It's just movie of the week fluff, yeah. you know? One of, the, one of the reasons I hated This Is 40 so much was, okay... If you want me to sympathise with characters, you need to actually make their problems relatable. If they have ageing problems, don't cast incredibly pretty actors. If they have money problems, don't show them throwing their money around wildly in scenes that aren't directly related to the fact that they have money problems. Uh, if you're going to show their businesses going down and you want me to sympathise, show them being good at what they do and our external factors. It was... I really, really hated This Is 40, and it's rare for me to hate a film as much as I did this one it was like no scene felt connected it was what something like two and a half hours long and 90 would have felt too much none, none of the jokes worked it was just it was just horrible i started to come around a couple of weeks ago when i developed a theory that the film was actually a metaphor for the financial collapse the gfc and uh the two main characters represent wall street <laughs> if that was deliberate then it starts to all make sense <laughs> but i don't think it's deliberate it's obviously not a good follow-up to knocked up no, but I didn't like Knocked Up either. Oh, okay. Yes. But to possibly more positive places, depending on where we stand, it's now Oscar season, in Australia at least, where we start to get all the films that weren't released in January in the US. Let's start with The Life of Pi, the new Ang Lee film. What did we think of this? I loved it. Absolutely yeah. adored it. I thought it was a great characterisation. I loved the the actors involved playing the, the main character. And uh, I loved, uh, forgotten his name, the actor who played him as an adult. Irfan um, um, Khan. That's right, yeah. Especially after seeing him in, in Treatment Season 3, which really Stop got me. I loved him. And I loved the look of the film. The only, the only criticism I had about it was um, I wasn't quite sure whether it was necessary to film it in 3D, funny enough. Oh, really? Yeah. I kept looking and I thought, yes, look, it is very, very beautiful, but I don't think I'm getting uh, as much out of this film in 3D as Hugo, for example. Mm -hmm. you know, and well, that Hugo's idea. like the benchmark. Pretty much. I, I think yeah. so. That was the only thing that I had. The rest of it, absolutely adored. Watching most of Life of Pi, I was perfectly um, kind of reasonably engaged. It wasn't until we got to the last act that I actively wanted to punch the film in the face. Now, this is an extremely rare, once in every three or four years type feeling I get with a film. It made me angry. Now... The story itself is whimsical. It's it's you know it's it, there's is, there's a little danger in there. It's you know there's very pretty visuals as you say. It's visually beautiful, although it is a bit of CGI overload for myself. But it starts off with Pi is searching for uh, searching for God, and we're told from the outset very clearly that a character sends this journalist to Pi's house to tell him this story, and the Pi's story will make you believe in God. And it's like well. 
if you want to make me believe in God by telling bullshit stories, we have the Bible for that. Why do we need this? <laughs> and then it's, and then all of a sudden we got to the end. And I don't know how much I should reveal because this is a spoiler thing, but there's a particular... Let's flag. There are going to be spoilers here, so if you haven't seen it. Okay, yeah. yeah. If you haven't seen it, turn it off for the next few minutes. Okay, so Pi's character, in the end, he's there's this sort of thing. He's told this great story about survival and the tiger walks away and it's all very sad. And then... He's um, telling the story to the people that own the boat and they and they can't go back with that story. So he tells them another story, which is that all the people, all the animals on the boat represent people that actually got out at the same time as him and it all went terribly pear-shaped and characters had to kill other characters in order to survive and this was the truth. And then he tells the journalist straight up, which story do you prefer? And he goes, I prefer the one with the tiger. And he goes, that's it. Believe the better story. And that was the point. I wanted to punch the film in the nose. It's like, this is the reason that we have so many stupid people in the world. This is the reason why there's, you know, the reason that there's still prejudice against homosexuality and things like because the other... People believe the better story to the point they let it legislate their lives. And I know that I might be in the minority here, and I know a lot of people haven't gotten this reading from it, but it really made me mad. And it was that sort of thing where it's like, it felt reductive to people of faith. It felt reductive to atheists. It felt reductive to agnostics like myself. It just felt like, so basically, people have faith because they just pick the nicest story. If they'd removed those bookends and it had been a story about the power of story, how people use the power of storytelling to reframe their own lives and m- make sense of their lives, then I think I would have come away thinking, yeah, that was, that was a nice little film. But the fact that it seemed to push this angle early on of this story will make you mm. believe in God and then we get to here and the journalist seems to be kind of getting it. He's like, yeah, I'd believe the better story too. And it just enraged me. And I actively hated the film. And I think it's, look, it's the best made film that I've actively hated probably mm. ever. See, I don't entirely disagree with your reading of it. It just didn't make me that angry. To me, that line was, that was kind of dumb. They shouldn't have put that in. If you you let me, you know, let me cut half an hour out of this film and I will make what I feel is a great film because I think all the stuff on the raft is superb filmmaking. Like, Mm. I really think Ang Ang Lee has done an amazing job with that. My problems with the book weren't in the the film. My problems with the book were, were to do with its prose. A lot of its prose annoyed me. And Ang Lee's filmmaking didn't. But I think the problem with that ending in particular is that that's a really powerful ending if it's framed within him telling these insurance guys this other story for them to write it down and then never confirms which is the real one. Was it a tiger? Was it a metaphor? If you leave that question in the audience's head, to me that's a really powerful ending. When he comes right out and spells it out... I love, I absolutely love Life of Pi, Lee Zachariah edit. Um, <laughs> my cut of it is an amazing film. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm look, I'm kind of on the fence on that one. Oh, yeah, it's funny. I with with that uh, bit where he tells uh, what you th- most probably think is a true story. It made sense to me why Gerard Depardieu's character was so short. Yeah. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, now I understand. It just gave that added depth to it or added impetus for me to just really grab hold of this one. And I, I complete reverse to yourself. Mm. You stood back from it and I just embraced it and thought, 
Fantastic. Just really, really great. Now, I think you're right, maybe, for those that actually believed it and he might have, I don't know if it's in the book, I haven't read the book, but that part where mm. he says, which story do you believe? Yeah. Is that in the book? Uh, it is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe for all the idiots, oh, that's <laughs> bad idiots. to say, all the idiots out there, <laughs> this is what it's all meant to symbolise. Can I just quickly say, I yeah. don't believe people of faith in general are idiots. I'm, I'm talking more people that are prejudiced and hide behind mm. their faith to defend that prejudice. Too late, Paul. Um, <laughs> speaking of religion, uh, your own god, Quentin yes. Tarantino, yes. finally back again. I just Django cr- crossed Unchained. myself with guns. Yeah. <laughs> so Django Unchained. Yeah, well, I'm kind of biased. I, look, I loved it. He's traversing similar territory to Inglorious Bastards in terms of writing historical wrongs through exploitation film tropes. And mm. I really, really love that little thread is on. And it's it's funny because he's kind of been, he's been nodding to Sergio Leone for most of the last decade now. And I like that this is his full-on spaghetti western. He's actually, I mean, there's as much Sergio Cabucci here as Leone, but he's he's totally embraced. He's finally getting it right out of his system mm. and and does it wonderfully. Like a spaghetti western, it's... You know, it's languid, it's wayward at times. But what I love about Tarantino's filmmaking is both his classical style and his willingness to kind of explore bizarre character tangents mm. and then sort of come back. And it always, I don't know, his films always take me on a journey. I always feel like I've been somewhere. I enjoyed Bastards because it seemed like a series of symphonies. But I can sort of tell that that some people were sort of annoyed by the how kind of disconnected mm. each sort of symphony felt in the other. I feel like Django is a lot more connected in that way. Its narrative is a lot more focused. I think his rage is sincere, and you could probably debate some points, but I think that I think that he really means it and that it's quite powerful on that level. And it's also really witty and it's wonderful. Yeah, I look, I, I loved it as well. I mean, there are, there are things in the film I have, I have a problem with, like I'm not sure the incongruous use of hip-hop really fit uh, the Australian accents are terrible. Jonah Hill turns up. You know, it's yeah. not a perfect film. Look, I, I think the Australian <laughs> accent, that that scene, you're sort of wondering, what is this? But the way yeah. he ends it completely justifies the whole reason for being there. Sure, sure. I do but love look, that. Those things aside, I, yeah. I loved it. I, yeah. I really, really loved it. George? There was no justification at all to make <laughs> this piece of trash. Wow! I, I saw it last night. Half of it I liked. The first hour and a half was really, really good. I, I liked that. I could see the focus of it. And then the next hour and a bit, holy mother of God, <coughs> a perfect example to take into a script writing class and say, now let's revisit this last hour and a half. I don't know, act four or five, but <laughs> let's just now come across... Uh, ways of making this better and it really lost me at the very beginning I thought it was uh, the story of a German character for yeah uh, King Schultz Christoph Waltz's yeah, character yeah. Waltz, trying to find these three guys and he uses Django to who can only recognize them you get to the point where that's all over and done with and you think fine and then it goes into something else straight after that and it just kept on going. So much so that around about the hour and three quarter mark, I had to I had to take my warfarin in the audience and I thought that was the highlight of the film. Oh no. <laughs> it was <laughs> oh, no. it was just 
it just bored the crap out of me after a while. Wow. When I got to the Australian bits, I could not stop laughing. <laughs> and then there's John Jarrett and there's Tarantino putting on the worst Aussie accent from the beginning and then end up being another accent afterwards. Didn't understand the, the Aussiness being there, except for the fact I knew he loved John Jarrett from Wolf Creek, so I had to find a position and for him somewhere. Dark Age as but well. this was horrendous, horribly miscast to put it there. Not, not, not miscast, miswritten, I think. <laughs> That's the only thing I can think of. Let's go with miscalculated. Very badly. <laughs> it just wouldn't stop, and I was begging for him to stop. For God's sakes, round it off, will you? But no, we had another three quarters of an hour to go. And it kept on plugging on, again, working in tangents. Oh, I couldn't have cared less who lived or died by the end of it. And my God, there's a whole bunch of death in that. Mm. Didn't worry me. And the use of the music was atrocious. I, I don't mind experimenting with uh, other music that's not part of the thing. I, I mean, uh, I think Pasolini did it brilliantly in Gospel According to St. Matthew. Mm. And uh, from there on, you know, but at least it fitted the atmosphere of, of, of the film. I don't think that having um, hip-hop or rap or whatever in this film worked. Maybe in theme, but in what they were saying, mm. maybe. But I, I think he just went far too far in this film with the experimentation and to me it, it just felt like it, it had a heart that had so many blocked arteries that, you know, I, I, was, I was dying. But aside from all that, you liked it? Yeah, perfect. <laughs> okay. Well, my film of the month, my absolute favourite release of January is Zero Dark Thirty. Whoa. Yeah. Big, big fan of this film. I just love Catherine Bigelow's aesthetic. I love the current phase she's in. I think she's even better than she was in the 80s and 90s mm. now and i just and yes there is you know a lot of a lot of controversy there's a lot of moral ambiguity in this film not in the depiction of the torture but in how it's used and i don't think that's a bad thing i i, I love the conversation that sprung up from that but as an aesthetic visceral film this to me was one of one of the best i've seen in the last year wow this yeah i'm a little bit torn with this film because all right, let's take the political background away from it. Just mm. just look at it as a piece of filmmaking. It's an excellent procedural. It's an excellent procedural drama of how an operation like this evolves and works and and um, is um, executed. Yeah, the filmmaking was quite strong. I'm not a I'm not a huge Bigelow fan. I can't. I always really like her stuff, but I can never love it. Mm. I don't I don't think it's a single one of her films I've loved but I really like a lot of them. And this was kind of the same, um, although I loved a couple of the performances in this. I think Jessica Chastain is fantastic and really deserving a Oscar nomination. But the one that really knocked me out is Jason Clark, the Australian actor who nobody can tell is Australian because his accent is perfect mm. and he's only mainly been in American stuff. And he's the, tor he's the torturer character who yeah. they later becomes a, um, a superior of, of Chastain's character. He just rocks and... I think the torture. I think the torture scenes actually do work to humanise the captive as mm. well as the torturers. I think they're really well handled. Yep. As a procedural, it works wonderfully. The bit where I get into real kind of doubt is why does this film exist? I just feel like is it, I don't know if it's too soon or whether it's too one-sided. And being a procedural, it's going to be one-sided. But it just feels like there's one of three reasons this film exists. One is as of some kind of public record. One, uh, two is a catharsis, 
is is it's you know is this a real life Inglorious Bastards slash Django Unchained? You know where we get to see God, I hope not. the bad guy killed. You know, <laughs> George. Um, <laughs> and the third reason is that it's propaganda, which is the most damaging of all. It's that kind of see what we did was right. We got yeah, and it was. I mean, you know, in the end, Osama bin Laden is a terrorist and is a bad guy. And I think in a lot of the debate that gets forgotten. Yeah. You know, he was responsible for the deaths of 3,000 people. Where it gets murkier is that America were partly responsible for that by giving arming him in the 80s and his struggle against the Russians yeah. and then and training him, you know, to be a, a, an awesome kind of black ops officer. So I don't mind that they left that out. And this is the reason why I think it's the first one is it's not the historical, everything leading up to this, everything in context. It's just this thing happened and now we're in it. What do we do? And the reason I think it's option one is that... They started making the film before Bin Laden was killed and they yep. had to stop and retool the script. They didn't release it deliberately until after the election because they didn't want it to be influenced and they mm. didn't want it to be propaganda. I think it's honestly just Bigelow and Mark Boll saying, what happened? Why, why, why aren't we talking about this? Why don't we know more about all the murkiness that surrounded it. And here's the story and here's how, here are the internal workings of the CIA. Or why did it take so long to yeah. get him? I, I praise the film, but I don't know if I'm in favour of, of its motives. So uh, we're here for the third of our uh, quarterly uh, mini hyphenates uh, segments in which we uh, focus on a filmmaker who uh, has a career of five or less feature films directed. And this month we've chosen to focus on Elaine May, who is uh, is kind of a god uh, to comedy fans as uh, one half of Nichols and May with Mike Nichols, or a popular nightclub comedy act from the uh, late, uh, late 50s, early 60s, who went their separate ways at the peak of their powers and both went into filmmaking. Whereas Mike Nichols' career kind of went from strength to strength and hit it fairly early on with um, his first two films, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate. Elaine May's route to filmmaking was somewhat more circuitous, but no less interesting, as we'll soon find out. Her first film as writer, director and actor, which is not something she'd keep up, is A New Leaf with uh, her and Walter Matthau. And it's kind of... it. The thing that strikes you about her style immediately is she's kind of working in fairly established genres. This one's kind of almost a screwball comedy. To the point it is a man courting an heiress. Like, it does sound like something straight out of Hawks. Mm. But it immediately has some very dark subject uh, subtext about the way men and women relate and about the fact that Walter Maddow's character is planning to marry her, Elaine May's character, and then kill her for a fortune. I just found this hilarious and dark and such a surprise and really, really wonderful. I think certainly her first two films, like this in 71 and The Heartbreak Kid in 72, both incredibly dark. I mean, they're rom-coms that have this really dark streak, this dark undertone. Mm. And she's absolutely extraordinary at capturing that and really evoking these hilarious yet incredibly sad performances out of... It's out of weird, people. isn't it? Yeah, she does straddle that line. Like, there's this whole thing about the way... Uh, like, the, a new leaf is, you know, a guy who cannot live in the way that he's become accustomed. And Heartbreak Kid kind of has that kind of territory as well. It's uh, like the Grodin character is kind of used to being single and being... And this relationship's just kind of happened and all of a sudden he's getting married and he's like, I don't want this. Yeah. The Heartbreak Kid looks at... A, a, a generation who aren't quite satisfied. And I, I started to look at the Heartbreak Kid as 
Elaine May's take on The Graduate. It mm. felt like her version, her look at mm. that generation, that post, you know, sort of baby boomer and, and a generation that's always looking for satisfaction and never finding it. And um, intensely interesting. And then her third film, uh, she clearly took an interest in uh, the films of John Cassavetes. She basically would shoot reams of film. Like her films would all, almost without exception, go wildly over budget, uh, doubling their budgets. Um, I know her, the Mikey and Nikki in 1976, Ishtar in 1987, and and um, a, a new leaf, leaf was 180 minutes. Her, the cut she yeah. gave to the studio, like she oh. likes her long cuts, and just would just let the actors run and run and run. And Mikey and Nikki seem to play right into that, being it's. She cast John Cassavetes and John Cassavetes' film regular Peter Falk. It has that Cassavetes handheld camera sort of style. It's very rough in terms of the filmmaking. A lot of the editing choices seem kind of incongruous and strange. And and it seems to be partly through going through all of this footage. And there's a famous anecdote from the set, which I found quite amusing. It was, was that at one point she was filming a scene with Falk and Cassavetes. They walked out of the room. And left, and she kept the camera running for about two minutes. And finally, the camera assist, uh, one of the camera assistants cried, uh, yelled "cut," and she lost it. And she's like, "Hey, that's the director's job. Don't do that." And he's like, "But the actors left the room two minutes ago." She said, "Yeah, but they might come back." <laughs> and it's okay. sort of, it kind of explains why she's had, why she keeps running over budget, why she keeps shooting too much footage, why she had so much trouble with the studios. But it's it's. It's so heartbreaking to know that she she did so little after that because, for my money, Mikey and Nikki is every bit the film that Mean Streets is. I can't believe that people talk about the best films of the 70s and don't talk about this film. If that had done better, I reckon she would have been as good as Scorsese where where he went. I mean, that M- Mikey and, and Nikki just astonished me. It's mm-hmm. such, And such a departure from where she went beforehand. I, I don't remember Mikey and Nikki. I, I had seen it at the cinema so many years ago and I've... I haven't seen it on, on DVD, but going on to Heartbreak Kid, I agree that there's a, a lot of darkness in that film, which I absolutely adore, but so much so that actually when I first saw it at the cinema, I thought it was a horror film because I thought, imagine that, that you've married to this woman. On the day that you go on your honeymoon, mm. you find somebody who you would like to have spent your life with better than who you just married only an hour or two ago. <laughs> And to me, that was horror. Mm. Um, and he was never into that marriage in the first, in the yeah, first place. Yeah. He's kind of swept into it. But yeah. then, and then you get to that amazing ending, just his look. Yeah. Mm. And it's like, uh-oh. And that's what made me think of The Graduate I Comparison. I said the same thing. Because it has that comparison. same last look of... On the bus. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. yeah. Have we I've made just, a huge I've mistake? Just got, I've just got what I wanted and I don't want it anymore. Yeah. And as as a trio, those three seventies films are astonishing. They're mm. so interesting, and there's so much subtext to dig into, and so much uh, really kind of interesting things to say about men and women, and and and, and how they're you know interacting in this sort of post kind of you know sort of post capitalist, post feminist type type world. And, uh, and then Mikey and Nikki is a completely different strain. Mm. But even that's got the men and women stuff in it. Well, the, yeah, yeah. those scenes where. Uh, Nikki takes Mikey to see the woman that he's kind of his yeah, kind of girlfriend. That extraordinary, and it's just shocking. And it's yeah, these films are so amazing. But after Mikey and Nikki, her reputation was pretty much ruined. It looked like she was never going to make a film again. And it was only in '87 that Warren Beatty gave her the chance to direct Ishtar because she'd written Heaven Can Wait, 
uh, which was a huge hit for him. And an Academy Award nominated, nominated script for them as well. And she did an uncredited rewrite on Tootsie, so she was sort of getting her mojo back a bit. And also Labyrinth and later Dangerous Minds as well. Really? It's quite Yeah, she did rewrites on those two well, as well. She also wrote The Birdcage, which is possibly the best American remake of a French film ever. Yeah. And uh, Primary Colours, which is... So she's it was, a really good scriptwriter. I call that the Nichols and May reunion tour. Yeah. Because they're both Mike Nichols films. Of course. Uh, but, but Ishtar, Ishtar was sort of where it... Or that was a make or break. That was a second chance, and it kind of and it went even worse than Mikey and. Well, Nikki. that was the thing because Beatty took her on. Look, Beatty produced the film, and he's like, "I and you've never had a producer who's protected you. I'm going to protect you." Mm. And from the minute they started, everything just slid backwards. Um, yeah, she she refused to compromise on certain points. Shot way too much footage. Asked for really expensive kind of things, and not for a diva. It's just because she's a perfectionist. Mm. And soon Beatty started being put in, in an untenable position and soon the two of them were at odds and Dustin Hoffman was often acting as the peacemaker mm. and it all just went wrong and but everything the... Beatty intended for May to have, it just all fell to bits and in the end it's kind of like there is no way, other way her career could have ended. Well, the film has a t- terrible reputation. It's considered one of, the, one of the biggest flops of all time and as May says herself... If ten percent of the people who had yeah. who had hated the film had actually seen it, should be incredibly rich. Yeah, you know, um, and it's it, such a shame because the film's actually pretty good. I find not it a lot of fun. That bad. I think it's second. I think it has some second act narrative problems. Mm. Uh, so yeah, but I think the um, the opening act is hilarious. Like it seems yeah. to be. A, it's like the opposite to a vanity piece. It's like Hoffman and Beatty wondering how stupid can we make ourselves yeah. look. It's it's really such really underrated funny. Film. It does go wandering a bit once they're in Morocco. It is essentially it was. May's take on a, uh, a Hope and Crosby Road 2 movie. Yeah. It's, it's so sad that we kind of lost this voice mm. because she's clearly an intelligent and thoughtful and, and, and kind of um, and funny um, mm. um, writer and we should have more people making these sort of comedies. Yeah, and, it's, and it was, it's a tragedy that we were robbed of, of that career because, yeah, I, I think she was an extraordinary talent. Mm. Uh, like, in everything she tried her hand at, you know, whether it was stand-up comedy, acting, mm. writing, directing, you know, whether it was comedies or, or you know, mob dramas, you know, it didn't matter what she tried. She nailed it every time out. So, George, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphenates, filmmaker of the month. <laughs> Well, Lucina hyphen at Visconti. Hey, Mr. Um, Visconti. Bello. Yeah. What about Visconti particularly interests you? I guess I'd have to go back to 1971 when uh, um, how I discovered him was um, I got this phone call from a friend of mine asking me if I wanted to go and see this film called Death in Venice. And I thought, oh, what the hell? Yeah, fine. It was in my final year of year 12. And uh, I knew I wasn't going to do very well, so I thought, let's go. <laughs> um, and I thought, Death in Venice, well, you know, okay, so it must be some sort of mafia film. <laughs> so we went, it was at the... Uh, Boy, were you disappointed. <laughs> uh, I think surprised, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I was absolutely mind-blown by this film, Death in Venice, and that was my... It wasn't, funny enough, it wasn't my very first experience with Visconti, my first would have been The Damned that I saw two years earlier. Mm. And I hated that film. Mm. Had I known that Visconti had directed Death in Venice, I may not have gone. And what started me off on, on uh, wanting to know more about it was because my reactions were so contrast. The Damned was bored to tears with. 
death in Venice mesmerised from the word go. Mm. And I had to wait until I was able to get a licence and got a car and was able to travel all over the place and go. At the time, Melbourne had uh, wonderful midnight screenings. One midnight screening happened to be within two months of me getting my licence was The Damned. It was a midnight screening. I knew this film was very long and I, I went to it. It came out at three o'clock and complete reverse. Wow. My, uh, reverse my feelings about that film. Loved it. Thought it was a masterpiece. Could not understand why two years prior or four years prior mm. now I hated it and I just wanted to find out more about him. Now, in those days, it was television was better than what we've got now, believe it or not. Uh, I mean, as far as what uh, films were concerned, even without cable. Visconti was starting to show on TV. Mm. Films like, uh, funny enough, Sandra, White Knights, The Leopard even, was shown on, on Jeez, 7. The Leopard commercial. would have been, went for about five hours with ads. Uh, well, no, because we had the cut version. You see, oh, okay. Australia had the sure. cut version. So instead of running three hours five, it ran two and a quarter. Mm. And, of course, then it was the horrible, horrible cinemascope print and uh, Technicolor print, which dulled all the richness mm. that Technoscope had for Visconti with the original cut of the, of the film. At that stage, it was at um, Monash University. And they were, they were uh, showing uh, a Visconti festival. And I thought, wow, great, great timing. And I got to know the people who ran the Union Cinema and we became very, very close buddies. And so the, uh, the night they ran The Leopard, which was the cut version, was the night they were running The Leopard on Channel 7. <laughs> and so I ran from, oh, wow. from, the, uh, from the cinema back home to see it again, <laughs> you know. And uh, the more I saw of this guy's films, the more I loved cinema. I keep saying to my students at RMIT, um, both with the scriptwriters and with the genre and history that I'm teaching there at the moment, I say to them, I learned more about filmmaking by looking at Death in Venice when I was 15 than I've done from most films ever since, although they've added naturally. Mm. The reason? At that time, even though I'd seen magnificent colour films that stuck in my mind like Gone with the Wind, I'd never seen colour used so beautifully. The, the, the pageant, the, the, the use of colour, the, the magnificent acting, even though a lot of it has been dubbed, mm. you know, mm. it just didn't detract. And the, the acting by Bogart in that film, I found incredible. I, I was so used to Hollywood-style mm. uh, acting, but to see him doing what he was so minimalist was so strong and powerful to me. I'd never experienced acting like that before. Mm, mm. I don't remember it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And that was, again, I mean, I was 15 when I first saw it, but I'd, it never, acting never registered to me until I saw that film wow. and Bogart's performance. The use of music in that film, it never registered before. I used to love collecting soundtracks, but when I saw that film, the pacing and the way he'd use music, even though he'd used the adagio maybe three times or four times in the film, it never felt l like it was forced upon me. It was at the right moments. The, uh, the languid uh, pans, especially in the beach scenes, were revelatory for me. Mm. In the 60s, you see that, like most Italian filmmakers, he, 
experimented with the Zoom lens. Yeah, he, like, takes to the crashing. <laughs> he takes to the Zoom pretty heartily yeah, from the mid-60s. Uh, the Damned was yeah. the first time I saw it like that. And The Stranger that. as well, just um, Zoom akimbo. Yes, yes. <laughs> but all the Italian filmmakers were doing that. Yeah. I mean, you've got Leone. Yeah. Um, but you Barfer have um, so forth. Uh, De Sico, especially mm. with uh, what I thought was his one of one of his great masterpieces, The Garden of Finzi Contini. And uh, looking at even that film now... I get annoyed with it because it just goes whoop, bang, whoop, bang, you know, with a, a zooming from, uh, you know, a distance to a tight close-up, very, like a crash zoom. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes Visconti did that in the den, but not that often. He would use the, the, the pan so mm. much uh, more beautifully than, uh, than most other filmmakers I'd ever seen. And even to this day, going through those films, even though the one I really detest, Lud- um, Ludwig, I mean, the wide lens... The cinemascope, well, the scope, wide shots in all of Visconti's films, I don't believe I've seen them used better comparing to other filmmakers, whether it be Coppola or whatever. There's something about his wide-angled lens, that the way he used to use it, is so different, so different. In, in Ludwig, the way he separates the... The, the characters, there's something about it that seems like to be bursting through the, the boundaries, mm. the, the frame. When Ossessioni came out, there were a couple of things that uh, really hindered this film from being released uncensored. One was the fact that Visconti didn't pay the rights to James M. Mm. Kane. Yeah. <laughs> so it never it never got screened in America for a Kane new, blocked it, yeah. Yeah, many, many until years. I think the 70s, I yeah. think. When they, when they, either he paid up or, Died. or somebody paid up anyway. <laughs> and uh, it was continuously cut by, A, the censor, B, funny enough, not so much Mussolini, who, um, his, who actually asked for a private screening. And Visconti never understood why he asked for it, but he never ranted or raged against this film. But, but his but he son... Put, he put uh, Visconti in jail, and he didn't he? Uh, well... He didn't. Visconti was put in jail. Thank God it was after the Ardentine um, cave massacre, mm. which I don't know if you're aware, Massacre in Rome, a very good film by George Pan Cosmodos, deals with this uh, massacre that took place in the Ardentine uh, caves where um, the Italian partisans, which Visconti was one, blew up in a, in a couple of rubbish bins and uh, the Via Roselli, and they killed 30 Nazi stormtroopers, and Hitler demanded 10 Italians dead for every German soldier. And unfortunately, in their prisons, there were four. And Koch and Caterini, I think his name was, had to dig up another 295, and they threw in everybody who might have been picked up on a misdemeanor, Jesus. let alone political mm. uh, prisoners, and children who might have been caught... Uh, stealing hmm. to make up the number God. and they put them into this cave and just kept blasting them for a whole day and it was uh, later discovered that the Pope knew of it but didn't step in at hmm. any time, didn't say anything against it. So Visconti avoided that? Well Visconti got arrested just after that. Hmm. He was beaten and he was Jesus. in prison for about five or seven days and naturally a lot of uh, friends of his, filmmaker friends and all the rest of it, that got him out mm. eventually. That's, God, that's amazing. Now, the thing that I'm constantly um, 
surprised by is it's funny with film movements you always kind of credit the second person to the ball with inventing the movement it's like the french new wave you you sort of think of godard and and truffaut when it was actually chabrol that made the first with dogma 95 you think of von trier when it was actually vinterberg and with neorealists i always thought it's de seeker or rossellini Mm -hmm. but lucio visconti made the first neorealist Uh, actually strictly speaking no it was renoir i mean maybe visconti did it in italy yeah but first, Renoir, okay, let's say more or less Italian in France. Yeah. Hmm. Now, uh, the reason why I say that as well is because um, uh, Visconti worked as assistant director to two of his films, yes. Tony and to um, uh, A Day in the Country. They say that he, he, he copied uh, Renoir's style. If he did, he certainly did not uh, copy Renoir's method of dealing with actors or with technicians. Visconti was exceptionally well-known and horribly feared for his wrath. He yelled and screamed on set. Wow. Um, he w- this guy was an absolute tyrant and screamer. Do you think that had to do with the uh, the uh, noble bearing, the uh, the fact that he was uh, descended from counts? Maybe he had a bit of entitlement I don't going you, on? I don't think you could use that as an excuse, no. <laughs> uh, I would have loved to have been able to say, yes, uh, um, mm. well, there's a good reason for it. But no, the funny thing is, um, even though Zeffirelli and uh, Rossi suffered under his yelling even at the end of every production and they worked with him for years mm. you know for years even though he yelled at them they learned they said that that we never had a film school mm. like working for Visconti and it didn't matter that he yelled and all he just wanted perfection mm. right and you were talking about perfection mm. with Elaine May with Elaine May now this guy goes well beyond yeah. that well is it a Kubrick sort of perfectionist um, territory? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you get that with the old school. Mm. I remember Burt Lancaster being stunned at the fact that Visconti would tell him in The Leopard, just go familiarise yourself with this place, right? And he would go up and pull a drawer out of, um, you know, in his wardrobe and find clothes and everything that were of the period that would never be seen. Wow. But von Stroheim was doing the same mm, thing. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, much to the wrath of Talberg, you know, they were spending so much money on real diamonds, mm. on petticoats or whatever that would never be seen. Yeah. Same with Visconti. But he wanted to make you feel, just like Stroheim did mm. to his actors, you know, you, are, you could have been wearing this. Yep. You could be wearing real jewels, real diamonds. And Lancaster... Got on his wrong side <laughs> right from the word go. I think he was expected to be treated like a Hollywood star, and um, he did something wrong. I can't now recall what it was. And Visconti uh, looked at him and then looked at Claudia Cardinale and he said, "While Mr. Lancaster is thinking about what he's going to do next, why don't we go into the next room, Claudia?" And uh, they go and they sit down four hours. Wow. And then. There was a knock at the door and it was the assistant director and he said, Mr Lancaster is, is um, now um, ready to, to do his take. And Visconti screamed back at him, really? And then shut the door and didn't come out for another hour or so. <laughs> but Lancaster yeah. loved it. He said, I've never been directed like this. And he and returned for conversation piece. Yes. Well, he and yes, he returned of of his own free will. <laughs> he didn't know what to expect with the the leopard, but he when he realised Visconti was ill, he was the first one on the plane. Came back and said, "What do you want me to do?" And he commanded. No, I was going to say he commanded that sort of loyalty. He didn't command it. He got it. Mm. Like he was maybe yelling and screaming, at, you know, at, at you guys. But by the end of it, you learn so much. You go. 
I could put up with this. Yeah. Zeffirelli and Rossi started to make magnificent films, mm. sort of. <laughs> uh, uh, but they, they said, if it wasn't for Visconti, we'd never, we, we, we'd never know our craft as well. Yeah. Piero Tossi, he discovered Piero Tossi, um, was a great designer. Mm. And Tossi said he would yell and scream at me. Sometimes I wouldn't know what he wanted. But he, what, he want, what he was always after is, okay, this is what I want, but come up with your own idea as well. Mm. But for God's sakes, give me something that's real. Mm. And when uh, he came onto the set of Senso one day and he was filming um, in the Fennis Opera and he saw that um, the aristocrats were wearing black top hats, he was mighty furious and he yelled and screamed at Tossie. He said, you imbecile, you absolute dickhead. They never wore black top hats. Don't you read your Balzac? They wore grey. Stormed off. Until Tossi got grey top hats, you <laughs> yeah. know, a hell of a way to learn. But he, uh, Tossi said, "I never made better films yeah. than I did with Visconti." It's uh, it's it's interesting that um, those um, those early films. Um, he's he's there's two very distinct, or two or three very distinct Viscontis within mm-hmm. his career. There's those early films like Assassini in 43, mm-hmm. La Terra Trema in The Earth Trembles in 48, 48 yeah. mm-hmm. Bellissima awesome. in 1951. And I'd, actually, I'd include Rocco and yeah, his brothers in that. Too. Absolutely. They Rocco actually, and his brothers in the 1960s, Le Notti Bianchi, White Knights in, in 1957. Yeah. All very neorealist mm. in their style. Careful. No. No? You no. don't think so? No, 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 no. In fact, he would neither. Yeah, there's certainly Assassini and certainly La Terra Trema, absolutely. But he could not stand the label. And he, really? he really fought against it, and uh, so much so that De Sica worked for him. I mean, all, the, all these amazing, uh, I never realised for a long while, mm. people like De Sica, people like Antonioni uh, worked for him mm. and learnt their craft from him. Even though De Sica had made films under the fascist regime, mm. he really started to learn filmmaking by looking and working with Visconti for a film but or he two seems, and then went off. He seems like the Jean-Pierre Melville of... Of the Italian filmmakers, what Jean-Pierre Melville was to the French New Wave. He was, yeah, like, he was yeah. kind of the grandfather of them. They all worked for him. And yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and Antonioni said that even he was under the fire of uh, the rages that Visconti would have. Mm. But he said, I loved it, mm. you know, and I don't believe everyone was uh, a masochist. But they, they loved it because they learned so much from him. Bellissima is the most non-Visconti film. Mm. Now, not because it's not neo-realist. It is because it deals with the, mm, the, the lower classes. Class. Yeah. 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 But because it had the stamp of Sabatini, who wrote the screenplay, Sabatini was such a force with the, the neo-realist mm. that really it's, it's his story, his script. Yeah. And uh, Visconti never thought of it as his film. In fact, it's the least, the, the least Viscontian film. And it's funny because after that he went on to Senso, which is a lot more elaborate, a lot more innate. Yeah, and, and he started he, moving in that and direction. He wanted yeah. to shrug off the neorealist mm. thing with that. And uh, not that he did it on purpose, it's just that here's a story I want to film. Yeah. Whereas mm. the neorealist, including De Sica, um, accused him of, uh, of leaving the movement. Yeah, he said, yeah. well, why should we be under such shackles? Mm. You know, I mean, look, you want to go and do something else apart from neorealism, why don't you go ahead and do it? Yeah. If you want to stay in it, stay in it. But I, I don't. I, I, I need to expand. Yeah. Well, they also, I mean, every neorealist director started to move away from it and, and, and sort of go back to the mm. the more elaborate films that they were railing against initially. Mm. And you can certainly see that, that grandeur yep. in, in films like Senso and The Leopard, which mm. are sort of about, I mean, you can definitely see his influence in, from the war like world war ii left a big impression he started making films that really 
played on, on, on the idea of life during wartime, even if they were about the upper classes. Um, and and then dealing with life after wartime, mm. with, with things, uh, life after wartime with stuff like um, mm. Rocco and his brothers and mm. Lenotti Bianchi. Yeah. Um, he, 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 I don't know if you noticed um, the credit to La Terra Tremor. It, it has this rather strange title where it says Episode 1, La Terra Tremor. Did you notice that? No. Um, and some people have thought that the second episode was Rocco and his brothers, where he right. got the yeah. Sicilian family, like yeah. the Velastros, now coming to Milan. Right. But it's not It's mm. not real at all. He had thought that he was going to make a trilogy mm. of films. One, La Terra Tremor, which mm. was the mm. only one that he made. The second one was going to be about, um, was going to uh, explore the exploitation of sulphur miners. Mm. I don't know where that would have been, whether it's in Sicily or down south in, in Italy, I'm not sure. And the third was going to explore the life of the peasantry, mm. but he never got those two films made. Yep. But some people have thought that the uh, Rocco and his brothers was a continuation of the Velastro family leaving La Terra Trema, leaving Sicily oh. mm. and coming to Milan. That does make Milan. sense, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. It does make sense, but in actual fact, it, it can't be because yeah. the styles are so different. That's it's true. a continuation of the story, but the styles are very different. One's neo-realist. The other one is not neo-realist, no, no, no. not really. But it does, it does make, and, and particularly the sense in those two films in particular, but across a lot of his films, of the differences in different regions of Italy and in, in Sicily. Mm. Like, the he really highlights that, you know, someone from Milan is not the same as someone from Rome. He's no. not the same as yeah. someone from Sicily. He's no. not the same as someone from this part of Sicily. No, exactly. You know, this coast of Sicily is yeah. very different. Yeah. To the, He's know. really big yeah. on, on, on defining those regional differences. He's very big on keeping them, uh, keeping them speaking in their own dialects. Mm. Yeah. No one understood the Sicilian dialect in Italy when the film La Terra Trema got released. Yeah. Nobody did. Yeah. And he had to, had to dub the voices. Wow. For the Italian release. Sessioni, much the same. Yeah, I mean, he filmed it uh, around the environs of Ferrara, mm. but he kept that dialect, you know, and it mm. really angered the, uh, the fascist government because, interesting thing, that they, uh, they read the script and passed it. And Visconti thought the reason why they've done that, two reasons. One, because it's taken from an American novel and their logic was... How could it deal with the uh, Italian society if it's based on an American novel? It's not going to. It's mm. not going to uh, reflect anything to do with Italian uh, society. So it it'll be a flight of fantasy, mm. right? But what I mean, you guys have seen the film. Mm. I mean, there's two things about that that is amazing. One, he's taken a James M. Cain novel and turned it into so Italian mm. you actually would think that the novel was set in Italy. Yep. And secondly, where is any evidence of the war? Yeah. You know, it's I, I find every time I see it, I keep there's, there's no mention to well, it. Well, there's, there's a no... war that they're talking about that because that's one of the ways he bonds with the husband is that they served with some um, regiment. Uh, yeah, but it's not uh, it's not World War Two. Yeah. No, no, no. Because there's it's a lot of World context with these films that kind of I have to admit went over my head. Mm. I'm not a student of Italian history, so mm. there's a lot of what was going on that just kind of ah oh, okay I don't know what that is we'll move on. It's just mm. concentrated the characters, and that was kind of one of them because it, it, mm. yeah it didn't sound like a World War Two regiment, but it was some war no. yeah. um, that it, I couldn't quite define. I'm not quite sure whether it would have been the Spanish Civil War, which was only about uh, six years prior to that. Mm. Well, that would make sense. But it was it was not. Uh, well, that's why you got the Spaniard there. Hmm. Um, hmm. The character of the Spaniard is is the thing that is stunning now when you look at it is how subtle and yet how overt at the same time the Spaniard is hmm. in uh, dealing with the homosexual. There's oh, a very right. strong 
when within his mm. character, especially when he and Massimo Girotti are on the bed, mm. there's such a strong sexual chemistry yeah, there. That was shocking. Like that was and, shocking for that time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why Vittoria Mussolini was watching this film unfurl on a hot night in a hot cinema mm. and he stormed out and he saw scenes like that screaming, this is not Italy, those are not Italians. Mm. Hmm. And uh, the film got horribly cut by the censors, horribly cut politically, and then it would make its way to various cinemas and the owners of the various cinemas would make their own cuts as well. Mm. And uh, so there, there was never a full release of the film until after... Visconti made, I think it was Rocco, mm. and he discovered at Chinichita the, um, the, the negative and he was able to put it, he paid for it himself, mm. put the negative back to what uh, he originally wanted. But that was in the 70s. So yeah. if anyone had seen a Sessione in the 60s, yeah. they wouldn't have got, the, they would have got a version. Yeah. Mm. But it would have been one of 50 different versions. The thing that struck me uh, about his films, I mean, throughout his career, particularly early on, though, is the the sadness that they all end on a really sad note. There's always... Um, oh, Sessione is a noir story, but it's like take well, all the yeah. crime out of it and it has such a tr- it's such a tragic story. Yeah. Uh, Lenotti Bianchi is devastating. Mm-hmm. I mean, that film should be called Burn. This <laughs> 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 is like, after all that, um, mm. Bellissima goes from... I mean, it, it, Bellissima it kind of has an up note at the end, but it goes from comedy to tragedy so fast mm. you don't see it coming. Yeah. Um, Rocco and his brother, Sandra... Yeah, the stranger. They're all yeah. They do end on those on those quite down yeah. Notes. Mm. And, mm. And, and the stranger is so intriguing because I mean it's such a Camus type mm. conceit. It's this. Well, he didn't want to. He didn't want to film it like that. He he actually the one that he hated the most was that because he he um, his original script to it was use the outsider as a springboard. As Orson Welles used to complain about, what's the point of of turning a novel into a, a picture book mm. film? Yeah. You know, just. It, use the idea, but yep. make it your own. And that's what Visconti had. He wanted actually to explain the use of torture mm. um, in Algeria at the time. He wanted to explain today, that day, the 60s, Algeria yeah. to the Italians and to the French. He wanted to exp- um, explain the character of Merceau, but use it as a, as a, as a, as a sort of like a, an allegory more mm. than anything else. But... Camus' widow would have none of it. She said, you stick to the book and that's it. And so Visconti was forced to do a couple of things. One, stick to the book, Mm. which he didn't like. I mean, he liked the book, but he didn't 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 want to film film. it. Secondly, he wanted Elaine DeLong instead Mm. of Mastroianni. DeLong asked for far too much money. And so they forced upon him Mastroianni. Who, who he'd uh, worked with before, though. Like, mm? they, he'd worked with him before. Oh, they worked. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, White Nice, they worked on before and um, on stage as well. Yep. That's where he discovered him. Um, he he, he uh, directed a, a whole bunch of stage shows and operas. And mm. Mastroianni did not have for him what DeLong could give. Mm. You know, so he was really unhappy with uh, the way it turned out. I, I, I noticed that there is one thing he does across nearly all of his films. Uh, he does it in Sandra and The Stranger and The Damned and Ludwig and Conversation Piece and L'Innocente and in particular The Leopard is the obscuring foreground object. There are so many scenes 
in which the action is taking place in the mid-ground yeah, yeah. and right in the centre of screen is something blocking your view. Mm. And sometimes it's the bust of a head. There's mm. a statue watching what's going on. Other times it's just a random object. Mm. Mm. But he's very big on that foreground object preventing you from seeing what's going on. He might have made a perfect 3D film. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, there's a wonderful shot that I've always loved in, I think it's a Sessioni, where there's two characters. They're walking along the road and they stop and they... They, they look at each other and the dialogue is going on. If you happen to look in the background, way, way out in the background in extreme long shot, yeah. the, uh, the farmers are working in the field and they're, they're doing the, uh, you know, throwing the chaff up to the yep. wind and all the rest yep. of it. And uh, it's a remarkable moment. It's, yeah. I, I'd, I'd, I'd never seen it before, oh, okay. you know. Um, that, that, I'd probably had seen that shot before, but so long ago I didn't didn't register mm. but this um the printer i gave you had been remastered so mm. it was so clear it was yeah. so, it's so mm. beautiful the depth of field there was magnificent mm. you know and again something that i believe he carried over from renoir because renoir well before wells um discovered deep focus mm. you know um and i think i think he used it um in in certain shots like that and there's n numerous moments in his films that he would use you know, maybe characters right in in, uh, in the foreground, mm. but some action going on in the far background, or a bust, and something happened right in the background yeah. as well. I know they wanted to discover the roots of present day society and of his own class as well. And um, with the damned, uh, he wanted to find okay, look, what gave rise to Nazism back then. And what, uh, what can I say about it for today's society? He believed strongly that the industrial, industrialists like the Krupp family paid money uh, to get uh, the Nazi party into power and mm. that they're responsible for what happened in Germany mm. and throughout the rest of the world. The unfortunate thing about believing that is, is that the millions that voted eventually um, for Hitler to get in were those of the lower strata mm. who were running poor, not the aristocracy yep. who already had the money. Mm. But they were at fault because they did believe that, well, if we give him the money and, and all the rest of it, then he'll become our pawn. That mm. was uh, the historical fact. That they, they shouldn't have believed that because they got this guy in and the world became a horror. Mm. With the damned, I don't know if you came across as a story, again, wanting perfectionism. Uh, it, no, no matter at what age, right up until the uh, Intruder, his last film, he was still yelling and screaming. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, uh, I love the story that uh, he was told that when he had the stroke on Ludwig, that he had to cut back on cigarettes. Mm. And he cut back from 120 a day to 80. <laughs> Well, and you, cut, you cut a third. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Technically cutting a third. Yeah. And uh, that he, he drank nothing but exceptionally strong coffee, which he made himself. Um, Any so, wonder he's yelling at everybody. He's fucking high all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Caffeine and nicotine. Uh, unbelievable, isn't it? But he uh, sort of tried to bring to uh, the audience's attention, okay, why did this all sort of take place. Apart from Ludwig, I can't deny, I can't deny the quality of his films. I love them. Mm. And I still learn from them. And going through all of his films, with the exception of The Witches, which is the only one I have not seen of his, and also a short film that he made before Assessioni. He did a, an experimental film. It just starred his own friends and it was made. He photographed it uh, himself. But 
um, because it was never released, but then he went straight into Sessioni. If I can just say that Sessioni for a first film, what a shorthand first film that is. Mm. It mm. does not feel like a first film. Not at all. No. Not at all. And yet he only worked on two films as assistant director to Renoir, made one short film which was never finished, and then bang, there he is. I mean, he really is an extraordinary filmmaker, and I think, you know, so many of his films could be considered some of the greatest of all time. He's got so many masterpieces in his filmography, and we've, you know, barely mm. scratched the surface of them, but yeah, he, he's amazing, and uh, thank you so much for enlightening us. No, thank you. Thanks heaps. And we'll see the rest of you next month. There's always carbon on the valves. 